God, our Father, we thank you that you are a good Father who longs to give good gifts to your children. Would you, by your Spirit, open up our minds, our hearts, our souls, to receive with humility the words of life that you have for us today. God, we live in a, in a culture in which we experience aggression, violence, dominance as a way of life. We internalize this violence in our bodies and in our souls. And we act out in ways that are violent and aggressive and dominant and oppressive towards other people. Before we move out into the world to critique the structures of power and violence, may we, as Jesus invites us to, examine ourselves, take the log out of our own eye, to see how violence lives in our hearts, and to be aggressive about rooting out that violence by the power of the Spirit, so that we may be a gentle people, following a gentle God. And like Jesus, learn the way of gentleness and lowliness of heart. This is impossible apart from the Spirit. So God, we ask for your help. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our scripture reading, uh, as it has been during this series on the fruit of the Spirit, is from Galatians chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you just to turn there. We'll be all over the Bible today, but if you want to keep your thumb there, this is where we'll start. Galatians 5, 22, Paul writes, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So today we want to talk about gentleness. Two weeks left in our series. This week, gentleness. Next week, faithfulness. And we want to talk about gentleness uh, over and against kind of the dominant cultural way of being in the world that is opposed to the way of Jesus. And I would, I would just simply say that is the way of violence, the way of aggression, the way of, of dominance, oppression. Um, so let's talk for a moment about a culture of violence. We, we, we've experienced so much violence in the last year. Violence against our bodies, violence against our souls, violence against our minds, our spirits, our emotions. Just some pictures I wanted to throw up just to remind us of the year that we lived. Um, last summer, on the heels of violence against George Floyd at Amara Arbery, we experienced violent responses in our city. Right here in Indianapolis, we saw this scene unfolding uh, although there were many peaceful protests, there was also violence. Um, that violence spilled over the next slide into even our, our businesses being shattered and shuttered, violence against physical space as a manifestation of the violence we were experiencing in our bodies. Continue on throughout the year, obviously, and we're all familiar with what happened on January the 6th with the Capitol riots and insurrection, and we, we saw a very violent political uprising and a political sort of uh, violence against the state, of violence against ideologies, powers. And then we, we continue to see uh, violence beyond that in Atlanta with some violent shootings targeting the bodies of Asian American brothers and sisters. 
And of course, just recently here in our city, we experienced violence uh, as mass shooting occurred at the FedEx facility, touching many of our friends and family members. Many of us know people that work there. We certainly all benefit uh, from their services. We see their faces in our neighborhoods on a regular basis. Indianapolis in 2020, um, as many cities did, experienced rising tides of violence. We had a record 215 criminal homicides in our city in 2020. If you live in Broderpool, you hear the gunshots all the time. There was a rising surge of intimate partner violence in 2020. Crimes against children, sexual assault. And of course, we saw even within the church, abuse of power continue as it has for the last several years. We see abuses of power from church leaders, powerful men having to step out of pastoral leadership because they've been abusing their power. This all gives rise to questions that we ask when we experience violence in the world. Uh, There's a theological category of questions that have been asked for some time that I just want to kind of point out because I know it's, it's, it's one of the violence and aggression and dominance within the body of Christ is one of the great barriers. It is the fuel for many people stepping away from the church. And it is also one of the great barriers to people coming into the body of Christ. This, this theological category historically has been called theodicy. How do we reconcile violence and evil and injustice in the world with the goodness and the gentleness and the mercy of God? Richard Dawkins uh, famously asked, uh, made this statement about God as, a, as kind of a violent God. He says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably, arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, I don't even know what that means, uh, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Now, I don't know what half of those words mean, but I know the picture painted by Dawkins is not a bright one for God. The question that's asked often when we see violence and we experience violence in our bodies and our souls is where is God in the midst of this violence? And, and, and more specifically, how are we to respond when many of these acts of violence, even the pictures that I just showed you just a moment ago, are perpetrated by, sometimes proudly, those who name the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, for Jesus, with Jesus, by Jesus, co-opting symbols of Jesus. What it communicates to some people is at the heart of God, because they see his people acting this way, is that God himself is violent, and that maybe there is no hope for justice. Maybe there is no hope for grace and mercy and love and these things that we long for in the world. One of the most uh, virulent kind of uh, opponents of Christianity in this moment because of the experience of violence in his own life, and he's a beautiful writer in many ways, he gets to the heart of what I think many people experience here, is Ta-Nehisi Coates. He wrote a book, which if you haven't read it, I actually would recommend. It it is a really penetrating analysis. Obviously, I don't agree with all of it, but Between the World and Me has become, and many of you have read that and you're familiar with this book. And it's written not as a philosopher, but as as the heart of a father to his son. And it is a very emotional, visceral book. But in one uh, uh, particular poignant section, here's what he says about his experiences with violence in the world and how it's led him to atheism. He says, the meek shall inherit the earth, 
which is the passage we're going to read here this morning, meant nothing to me. He's talking about growing up and reflecting on his life in, uh, in, in kind of a city full of violence in Baltimore, and then, uh, then reflecting on violence against uh, African Americans historically and slavery and Jim Crow and things like this. He says, uh, the, the meek shall inherit the earth meant nothing to me. The meek were battered in West Baltimore, stomped out at Walbrook Junction, bashed up on Park Heights, and raped in the showers of the city jail. My understanding of the universe was physical, and its moral arc bent toward chaos, then concluded in a box. That was the message of the small-eyed boy untucking the peace, a child bearing the power to body and banish other children to memory. Fear ruled everything around me, and I knew, as all black people do, that this fear was connected to the world out there, to the unworried boys, to pie and pot roast, to the white fences and green lawns nightly beamed into our television sets. And here's the key line, no one, not our fathers, not our police, not our gods, is coming to save us. The worst really is possible. And my aim is never to be caught, as the rappers say, acting like it can't happen. I am an atheist. I have recently realized this. I don't believe the arc of the universe bends towards justice, obviously quoting here uh, Dr. King. I don't believe in an arc. I believe in chaos. I believe powerful people who think that they can make utopia out of chaos should be watched closely. I don't know that it all ends badly, but I think that it probably does. This is how many African Americans feel in our country. This has been their experience, one of violence. And for many, it has led, to, it has led them away from the church. You can think of James Baldwin. You can think of many names here in this tradition. So I think underneath this, though, like if, if, we're, if we're listening to the heart cry, underneath these words, we, we hear the pain. And it really is, I believe, a crying out for a different way. I, I think Coates is crying out for a different way of being in the world. He believes life is tragedy as an atheist, and yet there's something in him, if you read his writing, that longs for these things to be true, and yet can't bring himself, based on experience, to actually believe that they could be true. And so the question in front of us as Christians, as the church in a world where this is the way that people often think of the church. This is even our experience oftentimes in the church. Can Christianity offer any resources to help us live differently? To have a hopefulness for the future that, yes, sees the violence in the world and says, no, this is not the way of Jesus, and this is how we are called to live as Jesus' gentle people in the world following a gentle Jesus. This, this sort of violence is not new. The particular manifestation of this certainly is new in our day. But if you go back to Galatians chapter 5, this, is, this violence, this aggression in the church is exactly what Paul was writing against. Remember the context in Galatians chapter 5, verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, that's, that's violent language. If you bite, if you devour one another, watch out or you will be consumed by one another. Similar to the words of Jesus to Peter, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Violence begets more violence. It escalates, and it never ends. It says, the works of the flesh are obvious. Hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy. And Paul says, this is not the way that we are to live as spirit-filled people. Filled with the Spirit of God, we are called and invited to be a gentle people in a culture of aggression and violence. So let me just define gentleness for us, because Again, this is very similar to kindness a couple weeks ago. 
Uh, gentleness gets a bad rap because we don't actually understand what it means, right? When you think of gentle, um, I think especially for men, you think soft, you think weak, wimpy, you know, uh, cowardly. But gentleness in the Bible, um, this word is really, really interesting. So there's two words in the Bible predominantly used for that are translated gentle. Gentleness essentially is used to describe um, humility and humiliation. Those are kind of the two broad ways that we can think about the ways the Scripture talks about gentleness. There's one word, uh, the Greek word in the New Testament is praus. This word praus is often translated gentle or meek or humble. All three same, same words in the Greek. And it refers to this kind of inner disposition of actually disciplined power. It is an inner disposition of disciplined power that refuses to ground relationships in pride or power. The idea here in, in Gre ancient Greek was, uh, the imagery here was of a, a wild animal. Think of a wild beast or a wild horse that had been tamed and brought under the, the, the submission of its master. That's the idea here. There's, there's power, but it's been brought under control in service of other people. That's the idea of humility. It is strength under control. It is not weakness. It is a strength that is harnessed for good. The other word uh, that's used in the Old Testament is the, is the Hebrew word ani. And this word ani is actually a socioeconomic term. So this is the humiliation piece. It's a socioeconomic condition of literally, physically, financially, in terms of social capital, being poor. It's a lowly powerlessness, oppression, dispossession, homelessness. That's the idea of the ani, the anawim in the Bible. The Old Testament is clear that Yahweh, God, is the advocate of those who are exploited by the rich and the arrogant. And over time, if you read the prophets, this word group came to be associated with not only with the material poor, materially poor, but also with those who in humility, in the midst of their humiliation, in the midst of their powerlessness, they learn to rely on Yahweh alone as their strength. They have no options. They have no power. They simply have to look to God to be their power, to be their strength. Zephaniah 3 describes this group of people very well. On that day, God says in judgment, you will not be put to shame because of everything you've done in rebelling against me. For then I will remove your proud, arrogant people from among you, and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. I will leave a meek and humble people among you, and they will take refuge in the name of Yahweh. We see the psalmist crying out to find refuge and strength for the Lord to be his stronghold. It's, it's literally at the threat of life and limb and violence. They look to God and say, you are my stronghold. You are my strong place. You are my tower. The righteous run into you and they're saved. And, and this is the reality of, 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 of meekness or gentleness. Let me just give you a simple definition um, for how I think about gentleness in terms of what it looks like to live into this. Gentleness in the Bible is power restrained and redirected in service of others. It's power restrained and redirected in service of others. So it has, a, it has an others orientation. And, and it involves power. So let me just say what gentleness is not. We, we know that gentleness is certainly not aggression and the kind of coercive, violent forcefulness that we see that, that's easy to identify. But it's also not cowardice. It's also not a fearfulness or a passivity about life. 
It's, it's not um, fragile and uh, cowardly. Moses, in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, is called the most meek man on the face of the earth. And yet we see Moses not afraid at God's invitation to go confront the powers of Egypt and to demand, let my people go. But his power is used not to defend himself, but rather in service of others, for the flourishing of others. That's a captivating vision for me of humility, uh, of gentleness. It is power restrained and redirected for the good of others. John Dixon Uh, who's a theologian in his book, Humilitas, talking about humility, gives this definition. It's my favorite definition. Uh, Sorry, C.S. Lewis, but it's my favorite definition of humility out there. Here's what he says. Humility is the noble choice to forego your status, deploy your resources, or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. The humble person is marked by a willingness to hold power in service of others. First, Humility presupposes your dignity. The one being acted upon, excuse me, the one being humble acts from a height, so to speak, as the lowering etymology makes clear. He's talking here about Philippians 2 and the humility of Jesus. True humility assumes the dignity or strength of the one possessing the virtue, which is why it should not be confused with having low self-esteem or being a doormat for others. It's powerful, he says. In fact, I would go so far as to say that it's impossible to be humble in the real sense without a healthy sense of your own worth and abilities. Second, humility is willing. It's a choice. Otherwise, it's humiliation. Finally, humility is social. It's not a private act of self-deprecation, banishing proud thoughts, refusing to talk about your achievements, and so on. I would call this simple modesty. Humility is about redirecting your powers, whether physical, intellectual, financial, or structural. For the sake of others. So with that as our kind of framework, we can see then as we look at the Bible how God is gentle, how Jesus is gentle, how the Spirit in us is gentle. That's what I want to say about God. I mean, again, every week you say the fruit of the Spirit is simply the character of God being made manifest in his people, going public in the lives of his people. The character of God, the nature of God is not violent. It is not aggressive. It is not dominant. It is not coercive in the sense in which we use that word. He is gentle. The Old Testament presents God with different imagery and metaphors that describe this gentleness. He's presented as a gentle shepherd. Psalm 23, we love Psalm 23. What does it say about God? The Lord is my shepherd. A shepherd was strong, right? But he says, the Lord is my shepherd. There's nothing I lack. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He uses his strength and power to create space for flourishing and rest for other people. Isaiah 40, 11 He protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. And he carries them in the fold of his garment. He gently leads those who are nursing. He's a gentle shepherd. He's a gentle parent, the Old Testament says. Psalm 103, 13, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. 
For he knows what we are made of, remembering that we're dust. And by dust, he doesn't mean lacking dignity. By dust, he means vulnerable. We're vulnerable. I, I think here of the picture. We have a lot of young dads in the room. When, when a baby comes into the world, there's something very delicate and sweet about that baby resting on mom's chest, but there's also something really powerful when that baby rests on dad's chest. You literally have the power as a man, as a father, to crush that baby, to kill that baby. And yet in all tenderness and vulnerability, you use your strength to create a safe space, if you're a good father, for your children to flourish, for that baby to feel secure, attached, trusting, loved. That's the imagery of God is this father who knows our vulnerability, who could, because he's powerful, crush us. And yet, he chooses to love us. Deuteronomy 1, likewise, says, And you saw in the wilderness how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all along the way you traveled until you reached this place. God is gentle. He's a gentle father. Now, what about all the wrath, right? Like, what about all the passages in which God gets angry, and he uses a kind of coercive force against peoples and nations. And here's what I just would say about that is, yes, those are real. We can't gloss over those passages. To do so would be to mischaracterize, misrepresent, do violence against who God is. But let me just say this. When we see God's wrath kindled, when we see him act out in anger, it is never reactionary. It is, it is never uh, unmeasured. It is never for no reason. It is never just vindictive. It's always directed towards injustice and idolatry, which vandalizes the shalom that God created his people to experience. It's because he loves goodness, because he loves beauty, because he loves what's true and good and right that God acts out like we would want someone to do, right? When we experience injustice, we want somebody to intervene and say, this is wrong. And that's what God does. And he's patient in his wrath. He's slow to anger, but he does get there eventually. And he says, enough is enough. But his heart, and this is what I just want you to hear, God's heart is not violent. God's heart is gentle. His heart is that of a gentle father and a shepherd that longs for the restoration of his children, even when he acts out in anger and wrath. It afflicts his heart, the Bible says. There is a divine reluctance to want to do this because it, it, that's not the point. The point is not to be violent. The point is to deal with evil and injustice. And that sounds weird to say there's this conflict in God, but there, there is. Lamentations 3, 33 says so. For God does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. It's not who he is in his heart. His heart is that of a father. And it's, it's what we see then represented in the life of Jesus, right? Jesus comes and he says about himself, the only time in the Bible that Jesus talks about his own heart. Matthew chapter 11, a very well-known passage. And Jesus says this about himself as the incarnation of this gentle God, this meek God. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. All of you 
Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for yourselves. My yoke is easier, as we translated a couple weeks ago, it's the same word, my yoke is kind, and my burden is light. Jesus says, if you want to know who I am, don't listen to what people in the world say about me. Don't listen to commentators. Don't get your advice about who Jesus is from a philosophy professor at IU or Butler. If you want to know who I am, look to me. I'm gonna, I'll tell you who I am. He says, my heart, my heart meaning not just feelings, but in Jesus' day, that would have meant the animating center of my being, the center of motivation and desire and longing and character. I'm gentle and lowly. He says, take on my yoke. A yoke was a, a heavy crossbar that farmers would put on their ox to direct them as they drug farming equipment through the field. In ancient Judaism, rabbis would use the idea of a yoke to talk to the disciples about putting on their teachings, about putting on their way of life, their interpretations of the Mosaic law. And in Jesus' day, the Pharisees and the scribes, their yoke, their interpretation, and their way of life had become not light and life-giving, but rather burdensome and harsh and crushing. And in juxtaposition of that, in contrast to that, Jesus says, I want to invite you to a different way of life. Their way of life leads to a kind of violence against the soul, a violence against the body, a violence against the poor and the hurting and the vulnerable. And Jesus says, I want to invite you to a way of life that's full of kindness, gentleness, love, compassion. So to put on the yoke of Jesus is to put on his teachings, to put on his way of life. In this way of life, he says, leads to what we all long for, freedom, rest, wholeness, true obedience to God from the heart. And the good news is that anyone and everyone is invited. The idea of lowliness is just the idea of openness. I'm accessible, guys. I'm not some distant God. I've come in the flesh to show you gentleness, to show you kindness, to show you the patience and the mercy and the love of God. I'm open. Anyone can come and learn this way of life. They can unlearn a way of violence, and they can learn a way of gentleness. Come to me, Jesus says, all who are weary and burdened. This is humility. We see humility embodied in the life of Jesus. It's humility in the midst of humiliation. Jesus was poor. He was one of the Anuim. He was poor. He was dispossessed. He was homeless. He sat under the boot of Roman oppression as a Jewish male and all that that meant. And he teaches, blessed are the gentle. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Quoting Psalm 37. Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 37. Those who wait on the Lord will inherit the land. They will inherit the presence and the promises of God. And Jesus comes and he fulfills Psalm 37. He is the patient one. He is the one who waits. He is the meek one. He is the humble one. He is the lowly one. And here's the thing about Jesus. He has power and he knows it. So meekness for Jesus doesn't mean, and people will say this, and it's, it's actually, it's wrong. He doesn't give up power. He doesn't give up his strength. He knows who he is. Like think about the night that he washed his disciples' feet. Before he bent down to serve, what does it say about Jesus? Jesus, knowing where he came from and knowing to where he was going, humbled himself and washed feet. 
Jesus knew the power that he had. But here's the difference between Jesus and people who abuse power. He never used his power to defend himself, to exalt himself, to justify himself. He only held power in service of other people. Jesus, in that sense, you could say is superior, and yet he's always acting inferior and putting his power under the interests of other people. This is a power under and a power beside, not a power over. Unbelievable. Most of us do the opposite, right? We feel inferior and we act superior. We use power to try to deal with our sense of inferiority and insecurity. Jesus knows he's superior and yet acts inferior, acts the servant. This is his heart. This is how he deals with us. For those who come to him, for those who know their weariness, those who know they feel burdened, which, by the way, is why we get violent. We're weary. We're tired. We're exhausted. We're tired of being humiliated. And so we lash out. It's enough. And Jesus said, if you're tired of being humiliated, if you're tired of being exploited, come to me. I'm gentle and lowly of heart. Dane Ortland in a great book called Gentle and Lowly that we're going to buy. Actually, we've got uh, free copies of for the entire church. We're going to read this together in the fall. But his book um, called Gentle and Lowly, he says this about Jesus. In the one place in the Bible where the Son of God pulls back the veil and lets us peer way down into the core of who he is, we are not told that he is austere and demanding in heart. We are not even told that he is joyful and generous in heart. Letting Jesus set the terms, his surprising claim is that he is gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus is not trigger happy, not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He's the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. Man, we have to internalize that. We got to spend a lifetime internalizing that. It doesn't seem real. It doesn't seem possible. But it's who God says he is. And you see this throughout the ministry of Jesus. I could go on and on with verse after verse of Jesus' kindness, his gentleness. He shows up and he says, hey, I'm here to preach good news to the poor, to the meek, to the crushed, to the humiliated, set the captives free, to give sight to the blind. He befriends and welcomes the vulnerable, the lepers, the untouchables, the morally despicable ones that the Pharisees won't even come within six feet of. They were, social, they were the original social distancers. He exercises compassion. He heals the crowds. He enters in, in Luke 19, in the triumphal entry as the gentle king, riding on, not on a war horse, but on a donkey, a sign of his humiliation and his humility, a sign of his, his poverty. During his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, he did not respond to the threats and the provocations of the powerful ones, but his silence was a form of indictment on them. And throughout the, the next several days, he would offer forgiveness time and time again towards those who did violence to his body and his soul. That is strength, friends. That is true strength. To restrain from violence and not use your power to crush but to serve and to die 
and to rise again is real strength. If you want to read a response, I don't have time to go into it, and there's lots of quotes, but if you want to read a great response to Natani's quotes and to all that are asking these questions about how could you be like a black person, for instance, and believe in this faith which is so oppressed, this Christianity which many would argue has underwritten the violence against black and brown bodies in our country. How could you find faith in the midst of that? I just want to commend this book to you. Um, Jesus and the Disinherited, Howard Thurman. This was Dr. King's mentor. He had this book on him, many people would say, when he died, when he was shot. And this book is Howard Thurman's attempt to answer a question, the very same question raised to him when he was doing some International Peace Corps work. And a Hindu essentially looked at him and said, how can you be a Christian? That seems like a paradox to me. This is, a, this is his response to not only that Hindu, but to everyone in his generation who was asking that question. And I think there's much still in there for us today. But it's in looking at Jesus. And it's in looking at his life and saying what we're experiencing in the violence that we see in the world is a distortion of the way that Jesus designed the church to be. And so it's not tossing away the church. It's actually redeeming the church and seeking to recultivate in this soil right here, right now, a new vision of the church as gentle people following a gentle God. And he says, only Christianity, Howard Thurman would say, can give us the inner resources in our souls and our spirits to overcome what he calls the three hounds of hell and violence, fear, hatred, and indifference, and deception, and lies. So let me just close with what, what does it look like for us to, to cultivate this, what, to have an imagination for gentleness? How do we get into this meekness, humility, in the way that Jesus defines it? Because we have learned a way of being that is not meek. We are learning that both outside the church and inside the church. And it is a battle. It, it will be the struggle of our lives, I believe, over the next decades in our country becoming more violent escalating more and more in, across the board in all metrics of violence. This will be one of the premier battles for the soul of the church, is cultivating gentleness in a time of violence. Let me just give you some, some ideas from the scriptures. Um, first, uh, we must take on Jesus' yoke, right? It starts with knowing Jesus, coming to Jesus in our weariness, in our burdens, carrying our exhaustion, feeling humiliated, not grasping for power, but rather coming to Jesus, the one who holds all power, who has all authority, and who's already given us all the power that we need. That's why in Matthew 20, he says, all authority, all power has been given to me, and I give it to you. Go and teach and baptize and make disciples. Disciple-making requires the power of Jesus, and we must come to learn Jesus' ways. And that means we confess our sins, right? Taking on Jesus' yoke means we see violence in our own hearts, we, we, we move towards self-examination before we move out and prophetically critique the world. And we say, woe is me before woe is you. Can I see the violence in my own heart? Can I confess that? Can I see myself as a fellow sinner? Right, because when we tend to get violent and aggressive and rough towards other people is when we don't think we are capable of doing the very same things. But if I see that I'm a sinner, I'm free to be gentle because I know apart from the grace of God, there go I. I'm just as capable as they are, given the right circumstances. 
So we confess our sins and we come to Jesus in vulnerability. We see our people who need the gentleness of Jesus. And we take on his yoke. In other words, we take on his way of life. We learn to be with Jesus and experience his gentleness day in and day out through prayer and meditation and solitude and silence and, and, and disciple making and you know, act, activity out in the world. We, we're with Jesus. We become like him and take on his character. And then we begin to do what he did in the world. Other things the New Testament says, other opportunities for us to learn. We, we, we need to be gentle in our relationships with other people. As we are learning to take on the yoke of Jesus in his gentle and lowly way, we have an opportunity to practice that in our relationships, particularly in this body. Let me give you some examples from the New Testament. How we correct each other and restore each other. Galatians chapter 6, I don't have these verses, sorry. But he says, uh, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual should restore such a person with a gentle spirit watching out for yourselves that you won't be tempted. And the implication there is tempted towards aggression and violence. Watch out how you restore each other. And, and the burden of that, by the way, is on leaders. It's on me. It's on James and I. It's on our deacons. It's on those who have positions of power to set the tone, to not create a culture where toxicity and abuse of power is normalized, is okay, isn't held accountable. 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says this to his opponents as an apostle. I, Paul, make a personal appeal to you by the gentleness and the graciousness of Christ. Paul, who had all apostolic authority, says, I'm gentle. And he calls leaders to be the same way. 1 Timothy 3, the qualification for an elder, one that's very underrated. He says, must not be addicted to wine, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. 2 Timothy 2, he says to Timothy, the Lord's slave or servant, doulos, must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach, patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Why? Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. Gentleness has an attractive quality about it. It's our gentleness that leads to repentance, not our coercion and our violence and forcing our will on other people. That, that leads people away from repentance. It hardens them. But it's the kindness of God, the gentleness of God that leads us to repentance. And we as leaders should be embodying that. And if we're not, we should be held account to that. You need to call us on that. That is our invitation to you as leaders. If you see that not the case here, you need to call that out. We need to be a leadership culture that demonstrates that gentleness. So in giving instruction and correction, we're gentle. In receiving instruction, we should be gentle. James 1.21, therefore ridding yourselves of all moral filth and evil, humbly or gently is the word. Receive the implanted word which is able to save you. Some of us love giving correction. We don't so much like receiving correction. We're not humble in receiving it, right? And there's this idea in our world, especially in business and in the marketplace, that the more power you have and the higher you ascend, the less you have to learn to submit and yield to other people. Matter of fact, there's a, there's a sector of entrepreneurialism that doesn't like being told what to do. As a matter of fact, hates it, despises it, and so says, I want to go start my own company so I don't have to yield myself to anybody else. I don't have to learn gentleness. I don't have to learn meekness because I want to be the one that tells everybody what to do. Humbly receive instruction from others. 
Spend time with the vulnerable. The widow, the orphan, the refugee. We heard stories about that earlier. Children. Jesus said, let the children come to me. He loved children. He wasn't afraid or threatened by children. He loved them. We, we need to learn to be gentle with the vulnerable. I think of Jesus in John chapter 8. A woman caught in entrapment in the double standards of the law. Jesus confronts her would-be accusers, and they all end up leaving. And Jesus, in his gentleness with this woman who was vulnerable, who was a sinner, but had been caught with an intention to entrap her because they didn't bring the man also. They only brought her. He says, nobody condemns you, neither do I. Go and sin no more. I mean, that's, that's gentleness. Don't sin. Stop sinning. It's truth, but it's grace. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. It changed your life. Witnessing to others. First Peter 3, always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. A lot of us get excited about sharing the gospel, as we should. But notice what he says. However, do this with gentleness and respect. In our sharing of the gospel, are we gentle? Are we respectful? Or are we coercing, confronting, harsh, aggressive? The last one, and I wish we had time, but we just don't have a whole lot of time to get into it. The last one is such a major category, and there's a lot to be said. It requires another sermon. But in our confronting of evil and injustice in the world, we are to be gentle. Romans 12. This is crazy. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Do not repay evil for evil. Try to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, on your part, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for his wrath. For it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. At the right time, in the right way, with the right motives, I will do the work. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Hatred leads to more hatred. Violence leads to more violence. So he says, overcome evil, not with more evil, but with goodness, with gentleness, with kindness. Bless them. Don't avoid them. Move towards them. Seek their good. Pray for them. Forgive them, regardless of if they ever ask for forgiveness. It is your job to preemptively forgive them, not because they're worthy of forgiveness, but because you have been forgiven by God. And it is a slavery of the soul to hang on to bitterness. He says, don't retaliate. When you retaliate, when you use violence, it cuts everyone off from healing. You are not able to be healed because it distorts your relationships and distorts your soul and poisons everything inside of you because you stop being a trusting person. You stop being vulnerable. It harms you. It makes you self-righteous, self-absorbed, self-pitying. And when you use violence against someone else, it destroys them as well. It does not give them the opportunity to repent. in doing so, you heap coals on their head. You graciously oppose them. You pour coals on them. And then he says, in as much as it depends on you, live at peace. So that doesn't mean where there's abuse or injustice that you just stay in and take it. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. 
To live at peace means sometimes we have to separate ourselves. Sometimes we always take it to law enforcement, right? We never just sweep it under the rug and say, oh, the church will handle this. We, we, we take those things to the appropriate authorities, and we, we, we advocate and we ally for those who are being abused. But, and sometimes it means we separate ourselves from that violence. But it always means that we are rooting for good. It always means we are praying for redemption. We are working for redemption, and we do it with meekness, power directed for the good of others. Before we jump into communion, I just want to give you the, the, like a really beautiful example of this. Everybody knows about the civil rights movement in the, in the 50s, 60s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and beyond. Um, and what a lot of people don't understand is how the civil rights movement was so effective. It wasn't just a bunch of ideas about nonviolence. It wasn't just a bunch of ideas about redemption and the, and the possibilities of redemption by those filled with the Spirit of God, although that was true. One of the most powerful things that happened in the civil rights movement was the training that took place to prepare people to engage in nonviolent resistance. There's a picture here on the next page, or on the next slide, of some of the ways that they would take young African men, uh, American men and women, and they would bring them in for training, right? Uh, because they, they, they thought it takes a tough inner fiber to not flinch or retaliate when people would provoke them or they would exercise violence against them. And so fearing their normal natural reactions to that violence, they created these courses. The leaders of the civil rights movement created courses. They called them social dramas. And they would subject them to all kinds of humiliation. They would blow smoke in their faces. Next slide. They would yell at them and scream at them and try to provoke them to anger and violence. Next slide. They would take children and they would splash water on them. And they would say, this is what you're going to experience out in the world. And your natural reaction to this abuse is going to want to be to strike back with violence. But they said, that's not the way of Jesus. That's not the way of this movement. Anyone who got mad in the face of the smoke-blowing, hair-pulling, chair-jostling, coffee-spilling, hitting with newspapers and epithets. If you got mad and you responded, you would flunk the course and you'd have to start over again. And armed with this way of gentleness, this way of training their bodies, training their imaginations, training their memories, training their minds, their hands, they said, this is how we're going to change the world. And it became a movement of gentleness, a movement of nonviolence in the midst of a world that was intent on committing perpetual violence against their bodies and souls. And we are the inheritors of this tradition. They didn't make this stuff up. You know where Martin Luther King got this? Mordecai Johnson and my man Howard Thurman. And, and they got it, they would say, from Gandhi. Now that sounds, oh, well, he's not a Christian. Do you know where Gandhi got it? You know where Gandhi says he got it? Jesus. This is the way of Jesus. I am gentle and lowly of heart. Come to me, all you who are weary, all who feel humiliated, who feel tired, who feel the pressing violence against your bodies and souls in a violent world, regardless of your race, your ethnicity, your socioeconomic background, your level of education, 
You are a human being created in the image of God, designed to experience flourishing, dignity, value, and worth, and yet all day long you are being squeezed and made to feel like you're not. And Jesus says, if you're tired of that, come to me, and I will give you rest. Believe in me, put your trust in me, bank your life on me, and I will give you rest for your soul, rest for your body, and I will teach you a different way of being in the world. All who come to me, he says, all who draw near to me by faith, I am gentle and I am lowly of heart. That's the invitation for communion for us every week. Come to Jesus and find rest. Come to Jesus and find gentleness and kindness and love and mercy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this good word. Thank you for your immeasurable meekness, your humility, your gentleness. That in the midst of our provocations, our sin, our rebellion, our injustice towards you, our idolatry, our failing to value you and worship you as the great God and the gentle God and the lovely God that you are, you continue to show us kindness and mercy. You continue to invite us to repent, to turn away from aggression and violence and cowardly ways of living and turn towards you to find true power, to find true life, to find true flourishing. So God, may we as a church grab onto that as a lifeboat this morning as we drown in a sea of violence. Be our rock. Be our stronghold. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.